Welcome to Archway's Western Civilization History Podcast for Families. In our podcast, we look for the best of the West and discuss the stories, events, themes, and people that made the West different than the rest. Last episode, we talked about slaves in the ancient world, specifically Rome. Today, we'll be building on that by discussing the peculiar lives of gladiators, about half of whom were slaves. We will discuss the history of the sport in ancient Rome, the daily life of the gladiators, and then the gladiator rules and classes. I think many of us share a similar concept of gladiators, guys in loincloths and quirky collared helmets fighting to the death with rusty iron swords and shields. Their fights are held in the blood-soaked sands of the Colosseum for the enjoyment of a degenerate populace, right? Well, as we explore deeper into the history and life of gladiators, I think you'll find the truth to be more complicated and fascinating than we have collectively imagined, and much closer to our modern sports entertainment complex than you'd expect. So, how did this quirky Roman tradition get started? According to worldhistory.org, the gladiatorial games began as an aspect of funeral services. Following the internment and funerary rituals, paid fighters would engage in games where they would enact scenes from popular literature and legend, or from the life of the deceased, as a tribute. Harvey notes that the term for these games was munis, which connoted a duty or obligation as well as a gift. Can you imagine? Gladiator fights at a funeral? Now, I wouldn't mind one at mine, but it's definitely a tonal shift from what we're used to. Anyway, these gladiator games became increasingly popular entertainment with the Romans, and they eventually lost their association with being exclusively funeral rites. Eventually, they became customary for just about everything, celebrating the emperor's birthday, coronations, triumphs, holidays, or other state events. Over time, the performances became more elaborate, expensive, and theatrical. Games went from being held at tombs or in the market to being held in an amphitheater and specially made arenas like the Colosseum. In the height of gladiatorial popularity, there were around 400 arenas. By the time of Spartacus, gladiator fights were getting out of hand. Politicians would wait months to hold their father's funerals so that they could have days and weeks of competitions as a way to earn votes. It didn't take long until the most politically powerful and well-connected people in the empire, or republic, were those that owned gladiators. Gladiator schools popped up across the land, teaching gladiators the arts of fighting with nets, tridents, swords, armor, and shields, and eventually, horses, chariots, bows, and lethal boxing gloves. Gladiator owners would own and train hundreds of gladiators at a time. The Roman military were particularly fond of the games. Often they would buy their own gladiator troops and build amphitheaters near their barracks. So what was life like for a gladiator? Well, for gladiators like Spartacus and other prisoners of war or criminals, it was a brutal and difficult life of enslavement, violence, being chained up all the time, and forced training. For many others, however, being a gladiator was a privilege. For that reason, nearly half of gladiators were not slaves. They were volunteers. 
For the poor and non-citizens, enrollment in gladiator school meant regular food, training, housing, access to baths and gymnasiums, massages, and of course a chance for fame and fortune. Successful gladiators could be paid extremely well. Uniquely, they were allowed to keep all of their prize money and any other rewards, regardless of whether or not they were a slave, foreigner, freedman, or citizen. Successful gladiators also enjoyed significant prestige. Mark Antony hired a troop of gladiators to be his personal bodyguard. Nero gave the gladiator Spiculus money and property equal to those given to a victorious general during a triumph. Wow. Gladiators also didn't die nearly as much as you'd think. I mean, they still died a lot. Like, the average uh, life expectancy for a gladiator was their early 30s. Now, but contrary to popular belief, most uh, gladiatorial contests did not end in death. Except for those of the Damnati, they would always die. Anyway, because of this, it was actually a workable lifestyle for some slaves and citizens. And you'd only have to fight in the arena maybe three to five times a year, which also lowered your risk of death. Gladiator owners and other gladiators all had incentives to not kill their fellow gladiators. Now, nevertheless, accidents did happen. Like I said, the life expectancy was very short. One historian estimates that you had a little better than an 80% chance of surviving a match. Because of this, there was one gladiator who survived an extraordinary 150 bouts. And another died at 90 years of age, presumably long after retirement. But yes, at noon during the intermission, the Damnati would have to come out and be executed. Seneca writes, These noon fighters are sent out with no armor of any kind. They are exposed to blows at all points, and no one ever strikes in vain. The crowd demands that the victor who has slain his opponent shall face the man who will slay him in turn, and the last conqueror is reserved for another butchering. The outcome for the combatants is death. The fight is waged with sword and fire. But, as worldhistory.org tells us, actual gladiatorial games, with the professional gladiators, were significantly different and the outcome was not always death. The opponents were evenly matched and would fight until one of them dropped shield and weapon, lifting a finger to signal that they surrendered. The individual who sponsored the games, known as the Munerarius, would then pause the fight. At this point, the famous Polisi Verso, with thumb turned, was given. Between the low death rates, the fighting for the slim chance at fame and glory, and the theatrical, over-the-top, scripted-style combat performed to sold-out arenas, gladiators are far more similar to professional wrestlers or luchadors than any of us would like to admit. And like League of Legends or Dungeons and Dragons, gladiator culture developed several distinctive classes, each with their own customs, prescribed equipment, handicaps, and strengths. And like worldhistory.org said, they would only be paired against other evenly matched classes. In no particular order, I'll describe some of the main classes and some of their rivals. The lowest gladiator class was the Bustuarius, the Tomb Fighters. They were strong captives from war who were given an honorable death. They weren't just executed like the Damnati. They were allowed to fight, but they were guaranteed to die. The Demi the Demacaris were highly exalted, ambidextrous, dual-wielding swordsmen. They would fight other Demacaris, or the heavily armored Samnites. 
There was also the bestiarius type of gladiator. They were paired against beasts like lions and tigers. Some of them were daring sword experts. Augustus encouraged young men to attempt this type of combat, and Emperor Nero actually did it, as did Emperor Commodus, earning himself the title Hercules in the arena. Most bestiarii, however, were voluntold to do it. They were usually captive slaves. You can see their lack of enthusiasm in the writings about them. Cicero mentions a single lion once killed 200 bestiarii in one match. Seneca discusses a bestiarii who ate a lavatory sponge to kill himself before combat. And Symmachus mentions a group of Saxon prisoners who strangled each other the night before their scheduled combat. The Mermillos were a type of gladiator that were bare-chested with big shields and swords. They had comically large, ornately decorated belts covered with gemstones, perhaps the inspiration for modern-day wrestlers and luchadors? Mermillos were usually paired against Thracians, a similar heavy armor type with fish helmets but they had curved, very sharp swords and multiple spears, just like the Thracian tribes were known for being expert in. Thracians were Emperor Caligula's favorite gladiator class, and so he would spare them every time if they lost a fight. These two classes would also often fight with Retiarius, an armorless fighter wielding a trident and a net. The advantage of the Retiarius was that without a clunky helmet or any other armor, they had improved vision and speed, and obviously the net helped tangle up their opponents and keep them busy. The Secutors were a class that developed specifically to fight the Retiarius. Secutors had helmets and armor plating, or arm plating, along with smooth-edged shields so that the Retiarius's net couldn't snag them. Secutors were often charged with playing the role of sharks in a performance, where the Retiarius would pretend to be a fisherman in a boat. The Rudiarius were retired gladiators, so named because they had received the Rudis, which is the Latin word for a wooden sword. The Rudiarius were the crowd favorites because the crowd was already very familiar with them. Imagine, for example, the waves in the wrestling fandom if Dwayne The Rock Johnson or John Cena came back for a fight. There were also several types of specialty classes that were typically only permitted to fight others of the same class or were brought out for extra special and elaborate reenactments. The Equis were the horsemen who fought with lances and small round shields, the predecessors to medieval jousts. The Sagittarius were the archers. They were used to simulate epic historical battles. The Kestus were the boxers, who had the brutally spiked iron knuckles to beat their opponents to pulps. The Esidarius were chariot fighters. The Provocateurs were a super heavily armored class, who uniquely didn't have a bare chest while fighting, they wore breastplates. The Ludia were the very rare female gladiators, and they were only allowed to fight each other, and they were typically banned by the Roman Emperor, but there were a few occasions where they were allowed. In addition to these classes, there was also a lot of staff to keep the show going. Editors was the name of the producers of the shows, the Yanista was the name of the owner, the Lorarius was the guy who whipped the combatants and the animals into fighting each other, 
And finally, the all-important Rudis was the referee of the match. So called for the wooden sticks that they'd thwack rule violators with. Also, many refs were Rudiarius, they were retired gladiators themselves. Now, what rules did gladiator combats have? Well, you'd be surprised there were actually several that we know about. According to imperiumromanum.pl, the referee could call for a duel if a shield or piece of armor broke or fell off. Then the armorer would have a chance to repair the damage. He also gave aloud advice and commands about attacking or defending. If the gladiator did not follow the instructions or avoided a fight, the fight had to be stopped and the fighter was lashed. Just like now, the decisions of the referees were not always popular. On the tombstone of one gladiator, it reads, Here I lie victorious, Diodorus the Wretched. After breaking my opponent Demetrius, I did not kill him immediately, but murderous fate and the cunning treachery of the Summa Rudis, the head referee, killed me. And that concludes this short introductory episode to Gladiators. Now you're all ready for next week when we'll finally discuss the most famousest of all gladiators, the legendary Spartacus and his gladiator rebellion that shook the Roman Republic to its very core. For more information about the topic of gladiators, check out A Day in the Life of a Gladiator in Ancient Rome by HistoryCollection.com, the World History Encyclopedia articles on gladiators and female gladiators, and the Roman History of Gladiators on Google Sites. I'm Doug Archway, and that's history for you.